If you're new to our church or haven't been uh, able to be here in a while, we are in the book of Numbers, so if you can turn there, that'd be great. We'll be in Numbers chapter 14 and 15. If you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 84. And we have been talking over the last several weeks about defining moments. And I won't rehash all of where we've been, but a defining moment, we've described it in this way, okay? It's a decision. It's when a decision you make or a direction you take has a significant impact on your own future, but also the lives of others. A defining moment. And our main goal is to look at scripture and really look at history. You know, the saying that if you, if you don't learn from history, you're condemned to repeat it. And I think that's true of all history, but, but how much more so when it's like God breathed history lessons for us to learn. And so we've looked at these defining moments when a decision we make or a direction we take has a significant impact on our future. Here's what we've seen over the last several weeks, just kind of a quick reorientation to where we are. God, in multiple places in Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the books that precede Numbers, had given a clear, gracious promise to his people. He said, I will give you land to possess. And for centuries, they wait for God to make good on that promise. And then there comes a moment when they finally, when they finally come to the edge of the promised land, the land God had promised to give them, the land of Canaan. And they have an opportunity to go in. And they send 12 scouts, but 10 of those scouts come back with a, what's called a bad report. And because of that bad report where they say, we can't go into the land, it's too hard, it's too tough. Most of the Israelites become filled with fear and doubt. And they disobey. This is the defining moment that we've been looking at in Numbers 13 and 14. I mention all that because we often have those defining moments. Some of those we get to choose, some of those we don't. Some of those we see clearly like uh, the the U-Haul truck has come. It's going to be a defining moment. And some of those aren't so predictable. Some of those we see in retrospect years later. This particular defining moment in Numbers had some pretty disastrous consequences. And we began to look at some of the aftermath. I I want us to hear this morning, God speak to us and show us this. All right, what comes after the defining moment? How do we move forward? Because life isn't just defining moments. It's kind of moving in afterwards. I mean, what do we do afterwards? And, And for that, can we continue to read a little bit of the aftermath in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 26? Numbers chapter 14 and verse 26. The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and he says, How long is this wicked congregation grumbling against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people which they, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you've said in my hearing, I will do to you. You said we're all going to die? Well, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. Except Caleb and Joshua, they were the two scouts, the two spies who had given the minority report saying, God's good, we can do this. So what you thought would happen, it's going to happen. But but in a twist, God says, but your little ones who you said would become a prey... I'll bring in. 
and they shall know the land that you've rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who gathered against me in this wilderness. They will come to a full end and there they shall die. And the men whom... Moses had sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against them by bringing up the bad report. They died by a plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua and Caleb remained alive. How painful. I mean, God is always sovereign, and this is also heartbreaking as people feel the consequences of their own decisions. It's heart-wrenching. The people of Israel had a defining moment, and this one turned negative. Not all of them do, but this one did. So here's the question. Especially after a defining moment there, you, you know clearly this was the wrong decision. What comes next? What do you do? How, how do you move forward? I mean, life doesn't stay in neutral. Tomorrow we'll wake up, and tomorrow we'll do something. And so you might have been in kind of the middle of a defining moment or the aftermath, or maybe one's on the horizon. But what comes after that decision that's going to impact the future and going to impact you and others. How do we move forward? Particularly when we think, ah, I wish I would have done something differently there. I want to present kind of two paths in which you can move forward after a defining moment. The first is in verse 39. Can we look at that path? So Moses tells these words to all the people of Israel, God's words, right? And the people mourn greatly. And they they rose up early in the morning and went to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We'll go up to the place that the Lord had promised. We've sinned. But Moses said, "Why why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that won't succeed? Don't go up for the Lord isn't among you. And you'll be struck down before your enemies. The Amalekites, the Canaanites are facing you. And you'll fall fall by the sword because you've turned back from following the Lord. The Lord won't be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the ark or the covenant of the Lord nor Moses, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And so the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. Two different paths. And the first path, can I word it like this? The first path is to attempt an autocorrect. That's the path we just read. So you know what an autocorrection is, right? I know very well. So I'm typing something, and I've typed something wrong, and immediately what I had typed disappears, and what should be there, the computer reads my mind, thank you Microsoft or thank you Apple, reads my mind, and, and there appears exactly what I, I'd really intended. The autocorrection, it's, it's all good at that point, right? Most of the time, most of the time, it's all good. Isn't that what they're trying to do? Let's just quickly undo this. And where's the quick keys to just get rid of this? And then, and then we can move forward. Let's just auto-correct this. They show up. They're ready to go. The, the official statement is, okay, we've sinned. Yeah, we made a mistake. And here we are now. We're ready. I, I, I read this and I think back to the 
the Mark McGuire interview before Congress. You know, we're not here to talk about the past. We're here to look at the future. And he said it over and over and over again. That, that's where they are. Let, let's just kind of, hey, we're, let's go forward now. Is this a legitimate way to go forward? Actually, it's not. They, they try this unsuccessfully. They're, they're routed. Why, why are they routed? Why doesn't autocorrect work? I mean, this is very human to say, I blew it, I'll make amends, and we'll move on. Why doesn't that work? Well, it doesn't work in this passage because, first of all, they really don't take sin seriously. They really don't take their sin seriously. Matter of fact, verse 40 will say they're still transgressing. Verse 43 will say they're turning back from following the Lord. They confess sin. They recognize it. But they really don't see it as serious. You know, Moses, it was all a matter of timing. Our timing was a little off, but now we're ready. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. We can do this. And they don't recognize the consequences of sin. We can fix this. We can do better. You know, we are better. We're better than that. We'll, we'll do this. And, and you see this massive autocorrect. Let's take control of our lives at this hand. You know, on one hand, few things are more American than like, I'll take personal responsibility for this. Yet often when it comes to sin, we have no clue as to the damage we've caused. We have no clue to our moment of anger. We just want to go, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. But it's all good now. Let's move forward. But we forget we've devastated people. And we need to feel that more than just, oh, what's your problem? I'm, I'm, I'm good now. Yeah, I, I made mistakes. We all make mistakes. We try this autocorrect. We have greed and we live in the consequences of greed. Or we have fear and everybody else suffers because of our fear and we think it's just like a, a new day, so let's just start over. Without feeling the weight of that, we have a lack of compassion. We don't treat people right, and we don't feel it inside. It's one thing to even talk about on a horizontal dimension. It's another thing to talk about our relationship with God. I mean, you read Psalm 51 where David is just, have mercy on me, O Lord, and, and he's feeling the weight of that sin. And I, I'd say, have, have we felt that? Do we repent in the way David repented in that way? We live in such a confused time where... In, in some ways, we feel like so empathetic and sympathetic with, with things. And then other ways, it is so, we are so inadequate in this culture to actually confess we've done something wrong. And to feel it. And to own it. And then to let the Lord do a deep work in our heart. They really don't take their sin seriously. And the truth is, they really don't take God seriously either. Not enough. They don't take God seriously. Verse 41, the, this is the command of the Lord. And they're saying, yeah, I, God, I hear that, but I see it another way. They presume upon the Lord as well. Either, I don't know what's going on in the passage. Either they don't think this matters to God. Or they don't think it matters whether God's with them. Or they don't think that Moses really speaks for God anyway. But, but anyway, they miss it. And they're hasty to move on. They wake up early in the morning. Let, let's go. Not realizing God's spoken here. Truthfully, they really aren't interested in consulting his plan. They're very interested in him blessing their plan. And I say, I am so guilty of that as well. Often, I mean, you don't see them saying, okay, God, what should we do next? Often I've got a plan and I want to work my plan and say, 
God, I love you. Help me out here. Am I as equally interested? Do I take God seriously? Because God had explicitly given some directions concerning their future. That doesn't even factor in. Sometimes I have discussions with people or certainly hear of discussions where, where someone, maybe a student or maybe in kind of a younger stage of life, says, you know, I'll, I'll kind of deal with God when I'm ready to. Maybe they don't say it in so many words, but like they're, they're happy with where their life is now. They really don't see a need for God. And so the idea is, you know, when I get older, I'll think about that. But it just, it is a strong reminder. But I think it's a needful reminder. You don't do a relationship with God on your terms. We might think we do. You might think you can in 10th grade. You might think you can even, even in your 50s. You know what, I'll get serious about all that. You know, when I'm ready to meet the big guy upstairs, I'll get serious. When I hear that kind of stuff, I cringe. Because you don't do a relationship with God on your terms. And it presumes upon God's grace just as they presumed on. Such an inadequate approach. So here, here's that defining moment, right? And there's, there's certainly a path of attempting an autocorrect, and that didn't work out so well. And so, like, well, what should you do? And what about those times where you, you didn't mess up necessarily? It was a defining moment, and, and it wasn't necessarily anything sinful or anything you regret attached to it. How do you move forward? Is there another path? And, and I, I love the fact that, yes, there is another path. I, I want us to see it in chapter 15. So if we can continue reading... What I want to prepare you for is like there's this story that's told in 13 and 14 and when you come to chapter 15 it seems a little anticlimactic because it's, it's almost out of place. Like why is this here? I mean we need, these people need to rebuild their lives and we're going to read about something that seems more appropriate in the book of Leviticus or some yeah, ancient religious laws not right in the middle of a, a pretty defining moment in the nation of Israel. Can you look at it in Numbers 15? Here's what comes immediately following this mess of two or three or four chapters. All right, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. Just remember that verse. And you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering it or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then the one who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering a, of a tenth of an, an ephah of fine flour mixed with a, a quarter of a hen of oil and you shall offer with the burnt offering or the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. And the chapter goes on and on and on. And so we're talking about defining moments and then all of a sudden we're in measuring spoons and cups. Like, well, what, what is the connection? What is the connection between the chapters we've just read and spent a couple weeks in and, and this particular chapter? Why give insight into offerings and, and the laws and the protocols around that? I think it's telling us another path. And that path isn't the attempt at a, an autocorrect. But it's actually a long obedience in the same direction. I love that phrase. It originated with Nietzsche, and 
who I felt like didn't use it helpfully, but I read it also in Eugene Peterson, who I feel like does use the phrase helpfully, and, and I think it's a helpful thing for us to remember. A long obedience in the same direction. Most of the time, I just want a quick fix, and this promises something else, but this is the path of those who will follow Jesus. A long obedience. When I began my walk with God, I'm not sure that was on my mind. A long obedience in the same direction. As much as defining moments count, I want to lay out a vision of something more today. And I was like, what will sustain us in that long obedience in the same direction? And I think the answer is in chapter 15. You know what happens in chapter 15? Is even from the beginning few verses, they begin to regain a clear vision of God's grace again. See, that's what a long obedience does. We're made to regain a clear vision of God's grace once again. How do I know that? I know that because there is a chapter 15. You know, after chapter 14, you could assume God's done. But then chapter 15, you open this and it's the Lord speaking again to Moses. What is that? That's God's grace. An opportunity to see it again. That God isn't calling it quits. He's not calling it quits with them. He's not calling it quits with us. We wake up and there are new mercies for the morning. And that's another reminder of God's grace. That God is doing something. That God hasn't given up on you. That God still cares. And there's this formula that's repeated again and again. The, the, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, Moses, you speak to the people. And all that is God's grace. And you come in here, and, and we all come in here knowing how we've, we've messed it up. And maybe sometimes we feel like we've messed it up royally. And we don't presume on God's grace, but we do see it, don't we? We see it and we appreciate it. As we begin to pursue this long obedience in the same direction, it makes us do something else. It makes us confront our need to hear from God. What does this long obedience look like? It looks like recognizing, I need to hear from God. I need to hear him speak. Humans cannot live by bread alone, but by every mouth, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We can't afford for God to go silent. I mean, it's just interesting God speaks. And notice verse 2 there, in verse 3. When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. I don't know that they ever needed to hear that more. God says, I am going to do this. I'm going to bring the Israelites into the land. They needed to hear the promises confirmed. And as he speaks, they realize that their life with God isn't over. It's really important that you hang on to God. It's exponentially more important that God is hanging on to you. That God is hanging on to you. And you need to know it. And you need to feel it. And you need to trust it. That is what the season following a defining moment might be all about, is hearing from God. Don't give up. Even on a side note, don't give up because there's another generation following you watching you, what will the next steps of your life be? However you envision moving forward after a defining moment, 
We better envision it with attention to God's word. Memorizing it, meditating on it, reading it, loving it, listening to it. A long obedience makes us know we need to hear from God, but a long obedience also helps us realize the opportunity, the opportunity, not just the need, the opportunity we have to respond to God with open, open hearts and open hands. I, I think about this when I read of all the offerings and I think part of what God is saying is, let's restore this relationship. And part of a, a restoration of that relationship will be them participating in the same offerings. Listen, they've heard this information before, but now God is saying, it, it is imperative that you maintain this relationship with me. At one level, when I start reading about offerings and grain offerings, it, it seems distant. I'm not a priest. I don't offer sacrifices like goats aren't trotted through this place. Nobody brings their oatmeal to church and puts it in the offering plate. So in some ways, this is extremely distant from what we do. And there's reasons because of that. But in some ways, offerings don't change. It's It's a symbolic way of demonstrating a priority that God, I will be in relationship with you. And even if it costs me something, I... I'm glad for something to cost me something as I follow you. I'll, I'll deny myself. Often offerings are a way of dealing with sin in such a way that God is pleased. Remember over and over again in this passage, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a pleasing aroma to God. Offerings are about expressing loyalty. Even later on in this chapter, the those who would bake bread are, are told to take some of the dough, take part of it, and, and offer that. Even before you make bread, take part of that and offer that to the Lord. Even just something as simple as baking bread, feeding your family, is now going to be hardwired with significance. Are you going to offer it to the Lord? It's expressing gratitude. You know, so my word to you this morning is like not offer your life up so that you can pay for your sin. No, that, that's covered in Christ. That is the offering. But we still have an offering to give. It's like Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that verse particularly has so much meaning to me because it's what was pressed on my heart when I felt like God was saying, I want you in ministry. I want you to give your life to this. This was the verse. And what what was confirmed in my heart is, well, of course I'll do what you say, God, because my whole life is supposed to be an offering. So if this is what you want, then I I give it to you. Hebrews 13 confirms that Jesus has made the true sacrifice, but then it says, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Don't neglect to do good, good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We have this opportunity to respond to God, not in a half-hearted way, but saying, Lord, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. All I am is yours. So let us take that opportunity to do good. This chapter closes in an interesting way in Numbers 15 and verse 37. Once again, following the heels of a great disaster. The Lord says to Moses in verse 37, speak to the people of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember 
all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I mean, God is repeating himself. And, and I think one of the things that is we see this long obedience, okay, what comes next? Well, what comes next is appreciating grace. What comes next is hearing from God's word. What comes next is offering our lives as a sacrifice. And what comes next is a continual reminder to point us back to God and his work and his word. Here it got very visible and very tangible. There are tassels and blue cords that in verse 41 say, they will remind you that I am the one that brought you out of Egypt. Look at what I've done. In verse 39, they are the one that are going to, it's going to tell you, you look at them and you say, this is my, this is the way I respond. I respond, you remember that I ought to be holy. Interesting, the advice that says, this is given so that you don't follow after your own heart. Which, man, seems so counterintuitive to all of culture that says, you know what you can trust in this world? You can trust your heart. Follow after your own heart. Here's something that totally recalibrates that for the one who truly follows God and says, no, we can't trust it. We need reminders to follow after God, to remember him. You know, God has built in reminders and feasts and offerings. He's given the church a reminder, a visible, a tangible reminder. So we don't have tassels and blue cords. He actually gave us a meal. He said, in that meal, what you're doing is you're remembering the body that's been broken for you and the blood shed for you. We call it communion. And this morning, we're going to invite all of those who trust in Jesus Christ to come to the Lord's table and remember body broken and blood shed. It's the ultimate sacrifice which was given by Jesus. And With Jesus, he's not only the one offering the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, he is the burnt offering, he is the peace offering, he's the sin offering, he's the one who makes atonement. And so whatever past we have, when we come to the the Lord's Supper, when we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded to look to Christ. And whatever path we're on, we're reminded when we come to the Lord's table to look to Christ. Not to look inside, but to look outside of us and say, because of what he did there, inside I'm becoming new. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Today, as we prepare to receive God's grace to us, can I encourage you to repent of sin, repent of your attempts at autocorrection? Can I encourage you to see the sacrifice of Christ? Can I... Can I encourage you to renew your motivation and your purpose to offer your life as a living sacrifice? And and as we receive it together, we don't kind of have private moments between us and the Lord. It's in a community. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family.